Hello and welcome to the True Purpose podcast. My name is Will Stewart and I'm the founder of True Purpose Enterprises. We are a collection of businesses created to empower and promote future-proof enterprise that drives both happiness and success. On this podcast, our conversations will explore what it means to lead with true purpose and why this is necessary for people, planet, and most crucially, profit. If you like inspiring stories of resilience, purpose, happiness, and biscuits, then your ears are in the right place. So, uh, what a guest. What a guest for the launch of season two of the True Purpose podcast. So, the majority of our listeners are from the consumer products and licensing industry. So, to have a true superhero of licensing as our guest to launch season two is really special. A truly comforting voice, uh, purpose-focused leader, and super kind to boot, this human has worked across the entire spectrum of our industry. So from brand owner, agent, and in manufacturing, um, licensee, license, or the works, her CV covers a plethora of consumer products, megaliths, from hit entertainment rights, 4Kids, Marvel, Mattel, Bulldog Licensing, National Geographic. There are very few humans who know more about the mechanics and opportunities within our $300 billion licensing industry. She's authentic, ambitious, and a huge inspiration to me and my businesses. She's proud of her dyslexic thinking super skill, just like me, and she's one of the best huggers in the industry. Today, she is CEO of Products of Change, a conference director, a board advisor. She does it all. So I'm super chuffed to get in her diary and welcome this week's guest, Helena Mansell-Stofer. Welcome. Hello, well. <laughs> Nobody's ever um, introduced me like that good. before, Will. Thank you very much. I know I'm a good hugger. You're a very good hugger. You're a very good hugger. And it's a shame that <laughs> this is a virtual thing and we're not doing we're not doing the yeah. hugging thing. But, but welcome and thank you very much for joining us. This podcast was all about driving purpose as key trend in business. And... You know, you've been a big inspiration to me because your business is is a purpose built business, and you know, we want more businesses to be more purposey, and we want more people to be more purposey, and we want to highlight businesses and leaders that that's just their natural thing, and understand more about how they got there and what drives them to do it. So, you know, very exciting to get a, a difficult second season going and very exciting to have you as a guest because I've wanted to interview you for a long, long time. So we'll start with the most obvious question, which is what is Products of Change? Oh, so Products of Change is, well, we say it's a purpose driven organisation. That's at the core of what we do. And we're really here to help drive sustainable change across the brand and licensing industry. We started four years ago and we're actually a not-for-profit membership organisation at the heart. And then from that not-for-profit membership organisation, we have a couple of other arms of the business. So we've got our advisor service so where we have the most amazing technical experts in sustainability that will come and work with with clients one-on-one to help them on their journey of, of betterment and we have a media side of our business with the most amazing editor Rob Hutchins who works on all of our newsletters and our I've magazines yeah Rob's fantastic and then within that we produce a conference called the sustainability and licensing conference every year so between media advisors and our not-for-profit we're we're all very busy but you know the main mantra of PSC is really to educate to inform change and 
in 10 years time our industry is going to look very different to what it looks yes, today it and we're here to take the industry on that journey and why why did you do it why risk everything to try and do something that you know it's not it's not a simple problem is it it's a billion problems no. tied together amongst thousands and thousands of different companies and mm. thousands and thousands of different products all essentially not in a good place from a sustainability point of view and your aim is to make them all sustainable right that's an impossible challenge yeah uh stupidity naivety I don't, I don't know what you want to call it I mean it was really my role at National Geographic that really opened my eyes to the impact that our industry has on yeah. the world and I love our industry it's been so kind to me and as you say I'm a hugger I you know I've got lots of friends in the industry I really do like our industry and the people in the industry where you know where the industry is full of really creative clever people and I was just surprised as I was learning through National Geographic as a brand through the society what we were doing I was just really surprised that nobody was doing anything about it that we were all just sat there with our hands over our ears and our eyes just pretending this stuff wasn't happening and um, and if nobody was asking us then we were just going to pretend you know we're just going to turn a blind eye to it and so that's why I created Products of Change I really just created it as a think tank and a sharing of information really for the industry of I'm learning all this information what do you know I'm meeting with all these amazing companies that are doing things differently that could really benefit from being plugged into the brand and licensing industry and the retailers that we work with so why not show them a way through with their amazing innovations so that's how it started it just started really organically And then Disney bought Fox and Fox owned National Geographic. So there was a, I I became redundant or my position became redundant. And the brand had just changed me. I'd learned stuff I couldn't unlearn. And I wanted to carry on down that road. So I thought, okay, well, I can't carry on down the road without being educated. So went to Cambridge University and did a a sustainability leadership course, course, which being dyslexic and doing a dance degree, I've never done anything like that before. Probably cried every night. My husband had to check all of my work to make sure it made sense. I mean, it was literally an nightmare. (laughs) Um, Whilst working full time and having a very young family. But that just, again... Education is just the key to unlocking so much opportunity. And and that's what that Cambridge course did to me. It, it kind of showed me the path of how as an industry, we, what we should be doing and how we can start to change. Yeah. So, and then that kind of took me on the next journey of, okay, well, let's take this group of people that want to change and everybody kept on saying to me well we'd, we'd pay money to be a member of this if we if you made a platform where we housed all the information. I'm like, okay, let's do it. So it's like blindly thinking that I could do something that was going to change a whole industry. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not. there's nothing like a push factor of, you know, redundancy to force an issue. I mean, it, it's obviously purpose-led and we can all, mm. you know, open a Barbie and realise the complexity even of just breaking the bits apart to turning into the recycling bags to do the recycling on something that, you know, hopefully are governing overlords recycling the right ways, right? And we work in consumer products and in licensing, we create thousands and thousands and millions of products that are all using resources. And ideally, we want them all broken down back into their component parts, as Cradle to Grave book talks about. 
So it's certainly an industry that needed this. But why you? Did you want to start a business or you've said it was an organic thing, but you went and did a course. So was the course because you wanted to start this business or was it, hey, I've got some time. I might go and do this course. I was inspired by National Geographic and how they did things. Which came first? Yeah, so the course came first because I was learning all this information at Nat Geo. I knew I was going to be made redundant. And I thought, if I don't do this course now, I'm probably never going to do it. So I did it in my last year at Nat Geo. I was like, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to and I'm going to learn them. And I'm having conversations with Nat Geo scientists and explorers, and and I just wasn't really understanding what they were talking about. So I was like, I need to extend my knowledge. I need to understand this a little bit more. I need to not just have the business lingo, but understand the science behind why they're saying we need to do what yeah. we need to do by 2030 or by 2050 and, and, and all that stuff. So it was really to help me learn more and have a better conversation. And then I found myself in the January and we went in lockdown in March and I was offered a couple of amazing jobs in our industry and just I just couldn't take them. I just kind of had to do this. I thought, well, maybe I'll go and do sustainability consultancy. You know, I know our industry. I know what we need to do. So that's what I thought I'd do. And PUC is a business. Silk came first, actually. So the, the conference came first before Products of Change was then registered as a business. So I thought, well, actually, education is the main thing. Let's see how we educate. And that's when I signed a partnership with the Max Media Group because they do amazing events. They have got a fantastic network into the industry. So I said, well, if I put the event on and I bring the conversation, their team will then manage actually making it a great event. So that's kind of where that business partnership started. And so the sustainability and licensing conference came first. And then as we kind of went down that road and members kept on saying, well, I'd pay, I thought, well, you know what? I've got some money in my pocket and I'll do it for as long as I can. And if that money runs out and there's nothing coming in, then I'll go and get a job. <laughs> And I've lost some money, but I never had it in the first place. And that money was for me to work for the next few months anyway. So, classic, yeah, I could have paid off some of the mortgage or gone on a nice holiday God. or bought a car. But no, well, that that money's gifted me some time to do something that means something to me. And if I do that for as long as I can and I can't do it anymore, I've given it the best shot rather than could have, should have, yeah. after Yeah, yeah, no regrets. With purpose then, so you, you, know, you worked at incredible companies doing incredible things, but it was... At Nat Geo, where purpose was that sort of your first sort of experience professionally of of purpose and that of being a slightly different direction or maybe you know like I think lots of businesses are thinking about purpose and certainly sustainable um, products and packaging, but was that the first time it felt very central to the mission of a business? Yeah, I'd say I'd say Mattel was probably my first real experience of purpose especially through the Bobby yeah. brand because yes we were a huge company and we were there to make money but actually what came first was the DNA of the brand and what the brand was teaching inspiring girls you can be anything you know it was there to to really inspire the next generation and actually people like Lisa McKnight and Kim Cormoni who actually are still managing the brand today and have experienced the wonderful of what's happening within Barbie as a brand you know all that hard work is coming to fruition all those years later and continuing I think that was probably my first experience of how a brand managed properly can really drive more than just yeah. profit and then it was when I went to National Geographic and I really saw the impact of our industry that actually that's when I thought I can't not do this I can't pretend it's not happening 
got to give this a go and at least I tried. Yeah, well, at least you tried. I mean, you've created something amazing. And I think you've created an identity and a something that the entire industry feels proud of, that we have you sort of driving that element. You know, and it's it's good for us as an industry to be looking at this sort of stuff and no one ever has any time or we're all trying to just survive and all those sorts of things. So to have the resource and the, you know, this huge bank of of knowledge and I don't know, ownership of that, that we can work with you and say, right, what do we do with this? Or how do we work with that? I think it's really great. Are there other organizations in other industries doing similar things to what you're trying to achieve? Yeah, I mean, when you look at the fashion industry, there's quite a lot. You've got the textile exchange, which is absolutely fantastic. You've got the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, which was started by Walmart and Nike 12 years ago now. Music industry, you know, you've got Universal Music, Sony, Warner Brothers, they've all built a collective. Um, that's probably about three years old now. And then even when you look at like BAFTA, they've created the Albert certification. That's all come from the industry, but it's come through the governing body of the industry, then working with sustainability expertise to enable that to happen. So it is starting to happen across many industries. There's certain categories that are further ahead than others. You know, fashion as an industry is outside of oil so it's oil is the most damaging and fashion is the second so it's really important that that sector looks at how it can start to transition to do things differently and when we even look at our industry fashion is the biggest category so um, you know there's a lot that we need to do there but it's great that these organizations exist yeah it's it's really good i you know i didn't know all of these mm. companies exist and we work with them so you know we work as, as a connector so we connect all these amazing I guess, governing bodies outside of our industry and bring all of their information through POC as well, because a lot of them are not-for-profits. They're very happy to share all the great work that they do. So then we'll say, Textiles Exchange are doing this, Recoup are doing this, United Nations are doing this. This can be relevant for you as a brand. This is how you navigate it. There's no point in us reinventing the wheel. No. But we can point people in the right direction. It's lovely to find your tribe when you find people that just believe in what you believe in and often purpose and values and morals and ethics are the things that can tie you together because it becomes very easy to work with someone like that so I imagine all these other people in all these other wonderful not-for-profits trying to make a difference you just instantly bond and you will instantly share and it's very collaborative right which is one of the criticisms of any other industry or business is you know, we're encouraged to be competitors to each other when mm. in actual fact, often we're trying to solve the same problems in a better way and exchange of information makes a massive difference because you're just, you know, making the pie bigger for everyone rather than trying to steal someone else's slice. Yeah, and also I think I've never experienced collaboration like I have done in the sustainability space, but even some of the brands that we work with, you know, we'll have Mattel and, and Lego and Hasbro all around the table sharing, you know, you'll have three retailers around the table sharing because the thing is that sustainability and saving our planet is bigger than any one business and one business cannot do this on its own. If we're going to truly build new systems that everybody's going to benefit from, one company can't have that as a competitive advantage because then the industry won't move forward consumers won't move forward you look at what Elon Musk has done with Tesla he then open sourced everything and now he owns a huge amount of renewable energy companies so yes he creates the technology but now he's switched and then he's now fueling all the cars with electricity of all the other car manufacturers as well <laughs> yeah but then it can then provide more this the I guess the 
you know, down, not downside, but the, the challenges back are with electric cars, you know, what do we do with all the batteries that only have this amount of shelf life and all these sorts of things. And I think it can get very, or there's certain generations that have pushed back on some of this stuff, generally older generations, I would say. I mean, what do you say to people that, you know, the detractors, I guess, or people that are, you're not going to make a difference just by having a different sourcing or traceability of one product, the problem's too big. How do you push back against the detractors? I think it's, well, you can waste a lot of energy doing that. So it's always easier to go to your tribe and have your tribe collectively be the bigger voice. And eventually the naysayers will have to catch up. You're always going to have that. Not everybody's always going to be on the same path. I also think, would you, you know, when you get older and you get to the end of your life and you look at yourself, would you like to say, well, I tried or I can't be bothered because I don't think anybody else was going to do this anyway. So it's kind of like, what do you want to say to yourself in a grand old age? You know, what legacy do you want to leave for yourself? Some people are happy to leave a load of money, be the legacy and not care of the impact of that. That's their choice. I don't want that to be mine. Yeah. Yeah, no, good. So purpose is obviously just running through you. Was there an early memory of, I mean, even you know, we ask the question quite a bit, what is purpose on this podcast? And everyone seems to have different answers to it. But I think one that really stands out is always what was your earliest memory of purpose or something that was done in that definer or or under that umbrella of word of purpose? Do you have something that was specific? I was was thinking when I said about purpose, I guess purpose to me is kind of my motivation to what I do in life. You know, when you wake up in the morning, what's going to make you feel good? And and probably my earliest motivator is probably my mum. You know, my mum is the most amazing spiritual carer. She's just one of these wonderful people that is fun and creative. And her purpose in life was to nurture and bring us all up in that way. You know, she was a single mum. I did a dance degree at university. I wanted to be a dancer. We had no money. She never once said to me, you can't do that. She always, you know, just, well, if that's what you want to do, if that's your purpose in life, then you go and you do that. And I did. I went to university. I did a dance degree. You know, that was what fueled me in those early days. And then the real life hits you and there's, you've got to go and get a job. Mm -hmm. But that was gifted to me for 22 years. (laughs) And that was probably my earliest memory. And that's probably why. I'm over-sympathetic, over-kind, you know, that's just who I am naturally. I became a vegetarian at the age of eight. <laughs> Did you? Yeah, still I'm, a vegetarian. I'm, I'm still a vegetarian. Wow. So I've been a veggie for many, many years. My children eat me, I, I cook it for them, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, I won't tell people not to do that, but that's, I didn't want to eat an animal and my mum, we had nothing, but she's like, you know, I can't, there was no alternatives in the McCartney sausages didn't exist then. So it's, well, this is the food we've got. If you don't want the meat, you just eat what's left. And that's what I did. You know, I was that strong. Wow. Age eight. That's why, why don't you want to eat an animal? I think it was just a kind, I just didn't want to do it. I just felt it was really unkind. I didn't want to do that to an animal. But you love animals, right? Not that I love animals, not that I'm a tree hugger or anything. It was just my... I just, I just didn't want to do it. And so I was yeah. like, well, then I won't. <laughs> so part of that nurture that your mother gave you, obviously the encouraging, you know, you can achieve and, and I'll support you and I've got your back and all those sorts of things. But there's obviously an element in there of supporting your independent decisions and taking responsibility. I mean, at age eight, I, my twins are seven, right? And then I'm thinking of you... Well, they're seven and a half. So in six months' time, they might choose to 
Yeah. It feels very young. Today, maybe less so. You know, there's so much information out there and the access to the information via technology is so good that you can find anything you want at a young age. But back then, at age eight, to make a big choice like that, that must have been about taking responsibility and independent decision-making and, yeah, responsibility or the consequences of your decisions, right? Mm-hmm. I also just think maybe, you know, like you mentioned earlier, I'm dyslexic. When I was younger, I really, you know, you went to remedial classes, you were the dumb kid in class, you know, yeah, you, it were wasn't thick, a, right? you were thick. So I always just felt very different anyway. I was different and I felt the world differently. And if I don't need me, then I'm different anyway. So I just, there was just no, I was never bothered about conforming because I didn't conform naturally anyway. So I'd always just did my own thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you know what? It makes so much sense. It's, yeah, it's, you know, like hearing some of your own thoughts. We've had quite a few business owners on the podcast already. And there's huge elements. I mean, dyslexia alone is a really a common skill that a lot of business owners find. The piece you were saying earlier about, you know, I've got it. I've got to give it a go. There's some sort of burning drive. And even if it goes wrong like that, I've got some money. If we run out of money, fine, but we'll keep going. That's a massive, massive trend as well. But, you know, the sort of not conforming, again, whether it's dyslexic or you're easily distracted and so you're often doing other things when you should Mm. be doing things. So not following the rules. It's a nightmare. (laughs) Well, it is a nightmare. It's probably a nightmare for your family and around you you and the people that work for you big nightmare for them Mm -hmm. but you work on it right but it's a massive thing of not following the rules and you know a lot of successful business owners are those that never really followed the rules or found a way around the rules that enables you to I don't know have that resilience and drive to build a successful business I mean four years this isn't a flash in the pan idea anymore this is a you know, established company with brands, events, an identity, a voice, connections, networks. It's making change. It's doing things, right? Beyond you now, mm. which is often quite me. a weird thought. Like if you go, this thing continues. That's that legacy, right? How does that feel? Yeah, I never really thought of it like that. Because sometimes, and you must feel it when you're a business owner, and I don't think it, I don't think you feel it until you become a business owner, just the weight of all that stuff that's on yeah. your shoulders. It's choking or suffocating sometimes. You know, when it all gets a bit too much, you just want to go and, and hide in a room on your own and just stop all of those voices. And then even just for your mental health, they get louder and louder and louder and louder, you know, your mental health. So you need to find a way to kind of curb them and, and being dyslexic, I'm not the most organized person. I try really, really hard. So I over plan because I know that just doesn't come naturally to me because otherwise yeah. it does have a massive knock-on effect on everybody around you. And actually, because we don't have a big team, I work with a lot of people freelance and I've got to be able to give them the working time for them to do the work for us to deliver it. And if I'm not organized in doing that, then it just puts too much pressure on everybody. So. Yeah. How do you manage your mental health then? You spoke about trying to get away or finding your time. Is that is that one of your techniques? I'm a big tea drinker. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I make a lot of tea, maybe like seven or eight cups a day. I found it really hard, you know. It is really hard because sometimes I look at our industry and I go, why aren't you all doing this? Why aren't you all members? Why aren't you on the track? Come on. It's like banging your head against the wall. And then I think, you know, well, everybody's on the journey and they're not all going to want to come to us and stop being so hard on yourself. And because it is that voice in your head and my worst critic. 
I try to go to the, you know, go for a walk. I love my Zumba. I call it my happy class because I did a dance degree. I love dancing. So I do Zumba twice a week. And that just takes me off into a whole different place. And I'm the 46-year-old in the corner that's pretending like she's 20 in a nightclub. And I really don't care. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, you know, Your it's just. Is yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think it's doing little things that make you happy. A cup of tea puts a smile on my face. A biscuit. I know you're going to talk about that. It's just those tiny little things. Talking to people just having that five minutes away from the to-do yeah I, I think it's absolutely vital I always try and have uh so I'm more of the coffee end of the, the hot drink spectrum I always try and have my coffees in the garden even if it's raining I've got a big raincoat and I just go outside because otherwise you are stuck at your desk and I find just getting away from things and just resetting the brain is really important to be able to continue going so as you say with those voices where like, why isn't this happening? Why isn't that happening? Rah, rah, rah. You know, we have this conversation a lot about you can't just focus on what you need to do. You've got to spend as much time thinking about what you've achieved. So I'm a massive note taker and I love a list. And I you know, have this diary set up of everything that we achieve every week. And I've done it all eight years since we started well the business. Done. Well, it, it sort of controls, I think, my brain and helps me understand what we're trying to achieve here rather than just constantly thinking, well, you know, if you look at your diary in any day of running a business, it's just a series of problems and, you know, issues. And that's not particularly nice. But when you solve them and you learn from them and you get the resilience points and those sorts of things, and then you remind yourself of what you've achieved. For me, it's easy to look at your business and think, well, I was talking to you four years ago, five, six years ago, and it was ideas and things you were going to do. And then I look at it now, it's easy for me to see what you've achieved, but for you to see it is is not as easy, weirdly. And I never write it down. Somebody said that to me as well, oh, you should put it on a mood board. I was like, oh, I've not got time to do that. I'm going to spend my time on doing this. And I probably should do that. And I just don't. I'm like, right, what's next? What do I need to do? What am I not doing? Who am I not sending something to? It's like all the time, not, 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 do, do, do. And I probably do need to get better at that. Yeah, I think it... It's absolutely vital for me. It's Branson. He always wrote these notes. Like that was his thing. So I just sort of took that and thought, well, I'm just going to start jotting this stuff down. The best thing about it is you can look back at like a year ago and you know, you can barely, I can barely read my own writing, but equally <laughs> you can't remember what these things are. I do a lot of acronyms. So I'm like TT something or other. And then I don't even know what those things were, but they were clearly important at the time <laughs> to write them down. <laughs> And then there'll be other things that something you did a year ago is actually now real or something you wanted to achieve. Do you feel confident that sustainability is going to be a standard thing? You know, in that you look at the packaging, let's just look at packaging because it's a good starting point. So much packaging is so badly designed, but from a cradle to grave point of view so we have resources on the planet that we turn into things and then we should be breaking them down back into their component parts that's that's like nirvana end game do you feel confident and in what time frame that that could be achieved i'm confident that we're going to achieve it because we just have to as in if we don't then our children i mean they're going to live a very different life to what we've lived anyway we've lived in this nice anthropocene they call it this really nice stable planet and we already we already know that that's changing already yeah and we know that 
consuming and producing is a huge issue to that. But, I mean, governments are recognising it. I mean, we've got so much legislation coming our way. There's such a huge wave of legislation that's coming our way, all from the European Union. And even in the US, there's stuff. I mean, hopefully... The elections in November don't change that around. But, you know, finally, there's legislation, especially in California and New York, which obviously when you look at the states in America, which are consuming and, and generating income there, you know, some of the two biggest. And we, you know, business, it has to, it has to transition. If they don't, they're going to get taxed negatively for that. And this isn't just the UK or the Europe. As I said, if you import or export from Europe, it's going to affect you. So it affects the global market if you want to have business with Europe. So we've got to. Yeah, the, it's yeah, it's got to be more stick than carrot, I think. And I don't know, the government, the overlords, we don't have a lot of confidence in them. But I know there's a lot of legislation coming through. Especially in the UK, we do keep kicking the can down the road. So it's kind of, you know. We do, we do it with everything, sugar tax, whatever. And, it, you know, is it because governments are only temporary and they don't really care for the future? because it's someone else's problem. There's no accountability. And that's very depressing and gets very, you know, can get you very angry. I think the way to counter it is setting examples. You spoke about California and how they're doing things differently, but we need to be inspired. Yes, carrot stick, those sorts of things, but partly why we did the podcast and what we want to be part of a voice of change as just like you. And, you know, the Dave Brailsford's marginal gains thing, it's like, you don't need to be doing everything straight away. The problem's too big, but we need to start chipping away. Little things you can do, little improvements will add up over time. And the more people you influence in POC and with the conference, inspire. Look at this example. People need to see it to believe it. And there, you know, there are loads. I mean, what's your, what would be your biggest success or what would be your proudest moment of POC so far? Cool. I mean, or one of when we do the Silk Conference, it's amazing actually because just the energy in the room with people talking and collaborating. And actually, it's not until I might have a conversation with somebody a couple months down the line and say, "Oh, we, you know, we connected with that person. And now we're working with them, or you connected us to so and so, and now we're doing this with them, or actually, I learned this, and you know, we're implementing something." So, what's amazing is when. I've not worked with them on a piece of advisor work and we've done the work for them. If somebody has been inspired, they've taken that initiative and they've wanted to do something with that and they've taken it back to work and they've done something with it. That is amazing because that's influencing people's behavior. That's so exciting. Is that? And that's kind of why POC exists. It's, it's amazing being able to advise and go and help people. But actually what really, really moves the needle is when people can do it themselves. And that's what we're trying yeah. to do is put the education into people's hands, connect people to the right people so they can go and do this themselves. Yeah, wicked, wicked. Does being purpose-led, does that feel different for work? Yeah, because you can't, I can't not do it. Because can I, you know, do I? <laughs> and until there's no money coming in, I can't not do this. Because what do I say to my kids? Because they're so proud of what I'm doing as well. You know, can I say to them, oh, it got too hard. And I've thought about it. I thought, why don't I just go and get that job? It'd be so much easier. I'd be less stressed. I'd have more holidays with the family. I'd have money in the bank could yeah. get the bathroom fixed yeah. you know all those things that make life nicer and I just can't do it in a way I'm kind of giving up I'm like I can't do that so I won't give up until somebody takes it away from me so the, basically there's a mission 
we find this as well. It feels different because there's a purpose to what you're doing and there's a mission and you're trying to make positive change. So it's not the same as other jobs where you're there to try and make shareholders money or just make profit. And I think that's the big change and you see it so much. There's so many companies, so many good people doing so many amazing things. We're in a world of massive, massive change. And we're looking at a generation of, you know, Gen Alpha particularly, who will look at purpose over price potentially in their choices, which has never happened in, in history. You can see whether this company is doing good things or not and whether they're authentic because there's a lot of fake purpose out there. Hence why we're the true purpose business because it's got to be a constant, it's got to be a given and there can't be any skeletons. But all of that bound up together is better. It makes you feel better. Yeah. I must say, when I started working at National Geographic, because 10% of all the profits went to the society and we saw the great work that that did. So, yes, I'm in a commercial role, but that commercial role is having more of a benefit than just money in the business. That felt really nice. It felt different. And that's why, you know, Disney were really kind. They offered me a role within the Disney team. I got offered two other really great senior roles in the industry. And I thought, but they don't have... Per- I, like, there's a feeling that I've got from this job that those those other jobs aren't going to give me. Yeah. It's amazing. It's ma- it feels mm. different, right? It feels different. Totally. So we asked this question as well. Does purpose make you happy? But everyone says yes, generally. So it's not the most interesting of questions, maybe, for the podcast. I think, no, I think, I think purpose, purpose makes you happier because you know that what you're spending your time on this planet doing is making an impact, is doing something different. You know, whether you help out in a food kitchen at the weekend but you go to work during the week but working during the week enables you to go and do that there's still purpose you might not be purpose in your everyday job I just think having purpose in life makes you feel better but at the same time the last four years have probably been the hardest four years of my working career so it doesn't mean it's not full of stressful unhappy moments (laughs) 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 it's not all sunshine is it it's it's really hard we have had a pandemic we've had brexit we've had you know just continual very difficult things recession war in europe you know it's really really hard but i think you know purpose can drive you in those tough times as well and and purpose can be everything you know if you try and google it it's a nightmare to learn about but purpose can be everything from just helping someone cross the road it can be a simpler little thing and it works because if you see someone drop their shopping and you go and pick it up for them or help them, they feel better because someone's helped them, which is a lovely thing. But you feel better because you've helped someone else. You get that little glow. And I think when you scale that up into a business in everything you're doing, all those difficult conversations you may have or the stressful moments, you're doing it for the betterment of humanity, the planet, everything else. So it just gives you that little edge, that little glint that is better than if I was just doing this. You know, in like previous companies I've worked, just doing this to make money. It's not enough anymore. No, and and it's all bigger than me. Like you said before, I would be hopeful that if something happened to me, POC could actually could still survive. It would. It would continue in your honour. Still continue. It would be. We'll do it for Helena. It would probably be. (laughs) Probably be bigger and better. It'd be bigger, and I'd be just like, hang on a minute. Why didn't you all give me some money before, so I didn't have to be so stressed? (laughs) Oh, we're just doing it in Helena's memory. (laughs) Golly God. So. It's, it's been amazing. Last question is, what is your favourite biscuit and why? Yeah, I had a good old think about this. Good. Because good. I do love a chocolate hobnob, but I don't eat them that often because they're so yummy. I can't yeah. eat mm. Milk or dark chocolate? 
oh, milk. But actually, you know what I eat most days for my biscuit? And it's probably the most boring biscuit on the planet. It's a rich tea. Classic. And I love a rich tea because yeah. I don't feel guilty eating it. It's my little sugar fix, so I can have yeah. one every day. <laughs> you can gorge those easily. Exactly. And they are so incredible dunkers. It's like my guilt-free biscuit. It, yeah, it is. I guess probably from a calorific point of view, it's a bottom. It's certainly a starter biscuit, isn't it? But if you know how to dunk a rich tea and you learn, like my kids are learning the dunking. Yeah, yeah. you've got to have tea. the spoon ready just in case. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's high risk. There's a little bit yeah. of mild peril. Of how deep do I dunk? And right, how much you lose, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Is the whole biscuit going to sink to the bottom of that tea? <laughs> and also you'll ruin the tea if there's sludgy biscuit at the bottom. But no, it's a really good choice, a really good choice. So look, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been fascinating. And as I said at the start, I I find you hugely inspirational because you are driven by this purpose, this responsibility to make change. And it's a massive problem and it's going to take a long time. But I believe that we're going to get there and I want to do everything I can to support you on the journey. So at the True Purpose podcast, we are building community of purpose-led leaders want to be part of the revolution to a true purpose-led economy through inspiring every professional to think more purposey. The humans that listen to this podcast, thank you. You're helping build a more purposey business future. We love hearing your feedback and reviews do make a big difference. It's going to take us years, maybe decades to get there, but change is happening. Thank you.